Hello, Velo News listeners. This is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Velo News Magazine, coming at you with a new Velo News Tech podcast. And if I sound a little jet lagged, that's because I am. Uh, I just got off a plane from the Tour de France and Eurobike, uh, where I had an opportunity to take a look at some of the new and cool stuff that uh, that the bike industry has to offer. Um, one of the the trends that I spotted uh, on the roadside is that this seems to be the year of aero bikes. Uh, Trek released its new Madone. Specialized also dropped its new Venge right before the tour. Uh, Cannondale has their new System 6, which we got a glimpse of first at the Giro. And it's been, you know, kind of kicking around for a little while. They finally made that official. And at the tour, Andre Greipel was riding the new Ridley Noah Fast. So why all of a sudden this excitement and hoopla over aero bikes? And what exactly makes a good aero bike? Well, it turns out it's a pretty complicated topic. Uh, aero bikes for the longest time had a reputation as sort of a sprinter's bike. Uh, the guys that are going to go fast on the flats, uh, and they were, you know, they're really uncomfortable and harsh. That's changed pretty considerably. So while I was at the tour, I wanted to get a sense of how some of the, the Peloton's riders felt about aero bikes and, and if they've become more useful uh, and where, where sort of comfort comes into play when it, when it comes time to decide whether you're going to use an aero bike or not. So uh, editor-in-chief Fred Dreyer caught up with Tom Scoinch at the start of a stage, and I happened to catch Peter Sagan at a press conference. So let's hear what those two guys had to say about their new uh, bikes. First, let's start with Tom Scoinch. First time I raced on it was uh, Dauphiné, I guess, yeah. and uh, then I did Nationals, and Nationals was dead flat, so it was like super, super nice to race on it, just because uh, you could really feel the advantage, and uh, Latvia obviously has um, guys that are better on the flats than me, but with the new and I could definitely put them under pressure, which was you- awesome. Do much with the ISO speed uh, decoupler? Are you adjusting that much? I haven't. Or? I haven't played around with it much. Um, I, just because, like in the beginning, you want it to feel um, similar to the old one, yeah. the Madone, and uh, and then you can really judge how it feels. And uh, hasn't really been. Uh, I haven't really felt that I need it to be more um, more soft or more hard. And so I haven't really played around with it now. Any type of road conditions where you might feel the need to. Yeah, some Latvian roads you definitely might need to make it a bit softer and uh, I think it's nice to keep it pretty similar stiffness to what it was just because um, the roads, you always you don't want it too stiff above a bike just because uh, there's always some bumps and uh, stuff along the road yeah. and like today we do gravel. so. You know, I don't know if you caught that there, but uh, Tom's actually just said, you don't want a bike that's too stiff. That's pretty unusual coming from a pro, right? They, they value stiffness over everything else. But one of the big detractions of uh, an aero bike for the longest time was that they were just so stiff that they were uncomfortable, uh, almost so, so much so that you didn't really want to ride them, uh, especially for the consumer, that's very important. So while while that exceptional stiffness is is vital for a guy that's going to be toe-to-toe uh, in, a, in a sprint uh, for a, you know the green jersey or something, for the rest of us, we need to make the bike bearable to ride on every day. Uh, let's hear what Peter Sagan had to say about that same topic. Peter, the, uh, the stiffness of the bike is very important, but does the comfort matter to you at all, or, is it, or do you just want the stiffness? That's the most important thing. Uh, no, it's, the comfort is the, the last thing. Last thing. Because uh, you can't be in the comfort position if you are racing on the bicycle. But, well, stiffness, the handling, 
the bike handling and then the light of, uh, of the bicycle, then uh, there's three more important things I think what the, the racer needs. Because also if you compare the sports car, then uh, it's not for comfort, right? <laughs> Good, good analogy. With the, the Roubaix, with the, the movement of the handlebars, have you gotten used to that? Do you prefer that on the cobbles, or would you prefer? Oh yeah, for sure. It's a big advantage on the cobblestones. Yeah, for the comfort. Yes, yes. <laughs> but now you can lock it out. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for the comfort, and uh, you can pass the cobblestones much better. You know, with no uh, some injury on the hands or yeah, it's good. All right. So Peter Sagan said a couple things there. He said, of course that comfort is the the least of his worries when it comes to his his sprinting bikes and his his bikes in which he intends to go fast but then he said on the Roubaix uh the bike with the you know the handlebars that pivot up and down to, to sort of counteract uh, big shocks that comfort helps him go faster so there even if the pros are saying they don't want those compliance features i think that's that's absolutely true in certain respects but some of those comfort features actually make them go faster. So when a bike company is designing an aero bike, that, that lack of comfort definitely is a problem that they need to address. And accordingly, they have. So while I was at the press conference, uh, I also caught up with Specialized Road Product Manager Eric Schuda, and here's what he had to say about combining aero performance with comfort. Is that, yeah, none of our pro riders are telling us we want more rear, rear comfort, right. right? So you can see we don't have any mechanism in our bike to add rear compliance besides what we're doing with tube shapes and layup. But by making all those tubes smaller, and we knocked 400, 460 grams out of this fence from the bias, mm -hmm. the comfort goes up significantly. Right. Just as a side benefit, it wasn't really a primary goal of ours on the bike, right. but it definitely is a lot more comfortable than the previous one. Right. Okay, so Comfort's important, but it's not important. Got it? Let's let's back up for a second. Aero bikes in general are clearly made to go fast, and that means that certain compromises have to be made. The comfort thing was the first thing to go when aero bikes started to hit the market. And now as companies kind of learn the uh, the ins and outs of what makes a good aero bike, there's, there's certain uh, aspects of comfort that can come back. But Let's talk about what makes a good aero bike in the first place. To get a sense of, of what makes a good fast aero bike, uh, I got in touch with some folks from Cannondale uh, that just launched the new System 6 to talk about what exactly all these truncated airfoil tube shapes are and what they do and why we're now seeing bikes that are uh, touted as the fastest in the world that are also touted as, you know, the bike you can ride every day and you're comfortable. So I spoke with Nathan Berry, PhD, uh, who is Cannondale's design engineer for the roadside uh, to talk about some of the specific challenges to de designing uh, an aero road bike and to ask him how come it's not just as simple as translating all the concepts from airplane design or car design into uh, road bikes. And one of the biggest constraints, as it turns out, is the, uh, the part of the bike that needs to be aerodynamic also needs to be the structural chassis of the vehicle. And that's a, a constraint that's pretty unique to the bicycle in a lot of ways. So here's uh, a snippet of my conversation with Nathan Berry from Cannondale. Okay, so truncated airfoil very simply just means an airfoil, which is the sort of uh, teardrop shape that everyone is familiar with, with a piece of the tail chopped off. 
So that sounds really basic, but it actually encompasses sort of this infinite number of shapes because it depends on what airfoil you're starting with that can have different thickness, different taper ratio, all those kind of characteristics, and then also where you're cutting the tail. So whether you're cutting it very close to the end or very close to the front is obviously going to change the shape and therefore its aerodynamic properties dramatically. So truncated airfoil is really just a family of shapes described by uh, airfoils that don't have their full tail anymore. All right. Just to summarize what Nathan just said, uh, an airfoil is essentially that, that airplane wing type of shape that's ideal for allowing air to flow around it as smoothly as possible with, uh, without creating drag. Truncated essentially means chopped off. So that tail gets chopped off uh, at the end, uh, and that's something you'll see most commonly on uh, aero road bike design. The question is, why? Why not just go with a full airfoil design? Well, here's what Nathan says. In general, it comes down to other constraints of your design. So for an aircraft, for example, you very rarely see truncated airfoils because truncated airfoils have higher drag almost always than a, a full airfoil section because when you chop the tail off, it means that the flow going around either side of that surface is now not recombining at a sharp trailing edge. It's now separating off, and so you have a, a wake at the back of the body. The advantage of a truncated airfoil over a more bluff shape, like a round tube, is that you're defining that separation point, and so you can make the wake much smaller than it would be on, say, a round tube. When it comes to bicycle design in particular, we have to operate within a whole bunch of rules for the UCI. At least the bikes that we are designing are UCI legal, and so they have to fit within these boxes. So there's certain depths that you can work to. And you also have to balance off the other characteristics of bikes. So if you have a, a typical airfoil section, it's much, much longer than it is wide. So this means the in-plane stiffness is very high and the out-of-plane stiffness is very low, relatively speaking. So that's why a lot of older generation uh, time trial bikes in particular, but also aerodynamic road bikes uh, had really poor ride characteristics because they were floppy out of plane in like head tube stiffness and bottom bracket stiffness, but very stiff in plane. So they were sort of harsh to ride. So truncated airfoils have a benefit there because you get uh, a more balanced stiffness profile out of the tube um, and you work within the UCI boxes and you can also uh, pick a specific taper ratio and shape that works the best for the flow in that area of the bike. Okay, so to summarize, a truncated airfoil is actually slower than a full airfoil. However, when designing a bicycle, using the truncated airfoil shapes allows you to do a few things that really wouldn't be necessary on another type of vehicle. For example, uh, tailoring the ride qualities for lateral stiffness, or for example, reducing weight. Uh, and that's why you're seeing truncated airfoils. So if they're slower, well, how are we getting all these uh, aero road bikes that are using truncated airfoils yet seem to be faster and faster and faster with every iteration? Well, most companies are using uh, computational fluid dynamics or CFD, uh, which is basically a computer program to sort of analyze uh, where the tube shapes uh, need to be longer, shorter, differently shaped uh, to, to optimize each tube so that it is as fast as it can be in the, the typical yaw angles that a bicycle will encounter on a ride. Here's what uh, Eric Schuda from Specialized had to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, if we 
go back to when the Venture Ice launched, and that was a huge leap in performance for us, like the most significant aero game we ever made on the bike. And when we made that, it was received very well by the teams as far as uh, aerodynamics. Yeah. But there was some other things I didn't like about it. The weight's really hard to swallow. Even though you show someone on paper the data, like, hey, this is faster, unless you're climbing an extremely steep hill. Uh, arrow's always faster, but it's hard to swallow just the, the extra weight that the bike had. So um, just with some lessons learned from the bias, our goal was, hey, how can we take this arrow performance and push it to make it faster, but we knew we're not going to get the same gain. The same gain that we went from Venge 1 to Venge Ice is just not going to happen again unless something changes with the UCI rules. Mm -hmm. uh, so really the thing was, okay, how can we make it faster? But more importantly, how do we make it lighter? Because mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the biggest things. And make it easier to live with. And make it an aero bike that can be ridden on more courses. So that was really the design approach was the last fend was pretty much aero at all costs. And this was aero for more courses. And so the way we got there was we said, okay, the number one thing we can do to reduce the weight is reduce the surface area of the bike. Uh, there's a lot of big, um, airfoil shapes on the Vengevice and a lot of other bikes on the market, the big like truncated tubes. And so we're like, okay, we gotta totally rethink how do we do these tubes. And uh, one of the guys in the office, a guy named Igmar, who worked on the project, is an aerodynamicist, brilliant German guy, like, smarter guy than me by a lot. And, uh, and he's, a, he's an aero expert, and so he's like, hey, I think we can um, write a computer program to help us figure out the best shapes. And so typically when we do a bike, we would come up with shapes that we think are fast. Mm -hmm. we, the aero guy would start with the shapes, he'd kick it to the FEA guy to run analysis and let us know, hey, is this shape going to work? Is it going to be light? Is it going to be stiff? What are the kind of trade-offs? And that cycle would happen a few times. We'd test in the tone. So Ingmar was able to write um, some code using some existing software and some new code that he wrote and uh, come up with a way to analyze tube shapes in the virtual space before we started to run time. All right, so that's not too surprising that bike companies use uh, CFD and a, a combination of CFD and wind tunnel data to determine which tube shapes need to be changed or tweaked, uh, which, one, which ones need to be less truncated or more truncated to make the fastest bike they can make. What was surprising about what Eric just said was that uh, in what he's saying is that aero bikes can be actually faster in uh, certain climbing conditions. So uh, until that road really kicks up steep, your aero bike might actually be faster than your all-around climbing bike. I was, I was curious about that because it seems to me like with the newest iteration of aero bikes, we're seeing sort of a melding of the aero bike category with the all-around category. So I wanted to see if that was sort of a purposeful thing that companies are doing. Here's what Nathan Berry from Cannondale had to say. Well, in some ways, I guess we're already there. We don't consider System 6 an aero bike. It's just a road bike that's really fast. So you have low drag. It's faster for most people in almost all of their riding conditions, and it will clear a tire up to about 30 millimeters, and it has disc brakes. I guess one of the limitations of so-called aero bikes from previous generations has been that to achieve low drag, they have sacrificed so many other elements of what makes a nice bicycle that they haven't been enjoyed by the general public. And I think what you're seeing now with uh, System 6 and potentially with some of these other bikes from competitors is that the design has reached the point now where there's far less compromise in terms of other characteristics, especially the, uh, the comfort and the stiffness. And so we are getting to this point where there's no reason why almost everyone shouldn't be riding a bike like this unless you are climbing in super high mountains.
there is a trade-off between weight and aerodynamics. Um, to get a bike like System 6, the surface area is greater than it would be on a traditional round tube bike, something more like our Evo. And that's just because you need more, more tube surface area to control the way that the air is moving. And if you add more surface area, there's only so thin that you can make all the walls. And so the, the weight does go up. You're never going to be able to achieve the lowest weight possible and the lowest drag possible on the same bike. So if you want to get the lightest weight possible, you kind of have to have higher drag in some regard. You're not going to be able to get minimum drag. Maybe you can get lower drag than what we have seen in the past, but not uh, you're not going to get the ultimate in those two camps. They're kind of competing for one another. So <clears throat> if you do want to design an ultra lightweight bike that's going to be whatever, uh, five kilos or something, you're not going to be able to have tubes that are as deep as what we have on System 6. Now, that doesn't mean that that bike's going to be faster most of the time. In fact, it's going to be slower most of the time unless you're going up a very, very steep hill. And so for most people, aerodynamics is the more important design constraint. And so you can afford to add a little bit of weight into the design of that system in order to reduce its drag. And that's really what we see with System 6. So we've talked about a lot... Uh, the performance gains here and for a bike like system six that tipping point is around six percent grade wow six percent okay so let's let's put that in perspective alp duez which is one of the most famous climbs in all of cycling averages 8.1 percent at its steepest pitch it kicks up to about 13 percent now that's probably steeper and more sustained than most of us are encountering on our lunch rides so should we all be on aero bikes i mean it certainly seems by that logic that we would actually be faster in most situations but you know it becomes a subjective thing do you want something that's lighter do you want something that's got that more lithe lively feel so again choosing a bike is always a subjective matter but it seems like the data is pointing toward the fact that you could actually go faster with an aero bike Eric Shuda from Specialize agrees uh, with Nathan Berry's assessment, uh, but he seems to think that the categories are blending a little bit faster and a little bit more closely uh, than, than Barry seems to think. Here's what Shuda had to say. My first impression of it was like, oh man, it's kind of like a fat tarmac, you know? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, are you guys heading down that road of sort of thinking at some point, arrow and all around will sort of combine and be one category? I mean, can, can we get to a point where those arrow gains can be worked into a bike that you could ride, you know, up and down mountains and every day, and, you know, sort of that tarmac feel? You know, I think we can get there with today's rules, but we don't know is, are the rules going to change? Like, for example, for weight, right? The Venge comes in like right at 6.8. Mm -hmm. The team bills are a little bit heavier than that, but um, if that weight rule were to change, I don't know if the acceptance for riders, if we couldn't get that weight down, would they just prefer a lighter bike, or would they be like, no, we believe in aero so much, and we're so bought into aero that we don't care about weight anymore? I don't really know the answer to that, but within the 6.8 rule, I think with the Venge, we've got you know, pretty close to one bike that can, that can do it all. Mm -hmm. You will see our teams, they do have tarmacs here still, and they're going to ride them on the mountain stages are the ones that have like a key climb because it still is a lighter bike. It's at 6.8. Their benches are around 7.1. So there's, you know, about 300 grams right there. But, uh, yeah, I think it is, it is possible. It's going to be a big challenge though, but I don't know what'll happen with the rules. Right. 
300 grams, that's the difference between the top of the line Venge and the top of the line Tarmac. That's not much. So we are already seeing uh, the, the melding of aero bikes with all around bikes. Uh, whether those characteristics will ever be exactly the same, that remains to be seen. And Shooter brought up a good point, which was that the UCI's rules will constrain what designers can do. Uh, and, and so w- while you're never going to see a full uh, airfoil shape on a bicycle uh, meant for the mountains or anything like that, there are other things that, that they can do, do to sort of hit that middle ground with truncated airfoil shapes. Now, uh, what would happen if they did put a full uh, airfoil shape on a bike? Now, you know, we've, we're at the point now where carbon is certainly light enough that, you know, you can you can make a full airfoil shape that's, that's plenty light. And we already talked about lateral stiffness. That would certainly suffer. But what about the other characteristics that would suffer? Here's what Nathan Berry had to say. If you imagined a lot of the bikes that do have these truncated sections, if you extended all of those sections out to a full tail and ignored the UCI rules, you would end up with basically just a sail on the side of the bike. So that makes it more difficult to control. It adds a lot of surface area, which is not necessarily beneficial to weight. So one of the things with a a well-designed truncated airfoil is that you might be able to get, say, 90% of the drag reduction that you would get from a full airfoil, but you're reducing quite a lot of surface area, and that means saving weight. So it might mean that including the full airfoil shape on certain parts of the bike might add a lot of weight and a lot of side area to your bicycle, but only reduce the drag by a very small amount. So there's diminishing returns in terms of drag, but a lot of negative effects that you might add into the design. So really what we're, what we're getting from all this is that the bicycle is in a way very unique in terms of aerodynamic design, uh, not only because of uh, the shape and, and the rider on top of it, but also because of the speeds at which it operates. So I talked to Nathan a little bit about uh, things that are unique to the bicycle design uh, that wouldn't necessarily translate to, for example, a car. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, so, I, I mean, the biggest difference from a fundamental perspective is the Reynolds number, which is the ratio between viscous forces and inertial forces. So, because bicycles are slower, the velocity is lower, and that changes some separation characteristics on the tubes. But that's quite a technical difference. Um more practically the big difference is your angle so a lot of people are familiar with the concept of your angle and basically it's the direction of the relative wind that you're riding through because when you're on the road there's this combination of road speed and wind speed that combines to your angle so because bicycles are going much slower relative to the air that's moving around us we have significant your angles to deal with cars are going two, three, four, five times faster than a bike. So those yaw angles are reduced. And then aircraft traveling at high altitude, the yaw angles are almost non-existent. So you really don't have to deal with yaw angles. You're dealing with just angles of attack. From a, from a, like a broad perspective of the flow field over a bike compared to a car or an airplane, the biggest difference is that ours has a dynamic geometry there. Cars obviously have spinning wheels. Aircraft can have propellers and things like that, but most of the body isn't moving, whereas for a bike, you have a cyclist with legs moving around, creating this huge dynamic flow over the bike. So that's obviously a very big difference between cycling and some of these other bodies, which can be modeled as essentially static a lot of the time. Uh, And another big difference is that cars and aeroplanes 
to a large extent, the exterior surface is not driven by the structural requirements. So in a car, for example, the pieces that carry the load are not necessarily exposed to the air. So you can separate the skin of the vehicle from the structural carrying part of the vehicle. Whereas on a bike, it's the same thing. We don't have an internal skeleton and then a fairing on the outside. Okay. On on the new system six that you guys just released, uh, what what are I? So I, I think I incorrectly guessed something when I saw this bike at the Giro. Uh, I said that you know it, there seemed to be some sort of texture. Uh, I think it was on the inside of the fork blades and and on the C tube. And my guess was that that was supposed to aid with that flow separation uh, to help control that and and get the flow to to separate so that it wasn't creating that low pressure. Uh, on the the production model, it seems like those textures aren't even there. Uh, so was I guessing completely wrong? You were. That was that was a nice guess, but no, that was just the. Uh, the decals and the paint job that was then covered by stickers on the pro edition bikes. They had, uh, they had cover over their paint schemes while the bike was in prototype. And so that, that generated that surface texture, but depending on the graphic treatment of the bike will depend a little bit on whether you see those features there or not. But the performance of the bike is not dictated by surface treatment. It's by the shape of those tubes. Okay. Uh, so I was completely 100% wrong. <laughs> Whoops. Um, Good theory though. Yeah. So, I, and the reason I, I arrived at that is because you think about, uh, and I, I, I sort of, I wrote an article about this recently. We, you, know, you talk about, uh, riders socks, uh, and you know, there's a lot of riders riding really high socks with textures, uh, and, and, in talking with other engineers, they've said that that hypothetically is to help with that flow separation, but it, it, it might actually end up being slower at certain speeds, just given given the speeds that, that certain riders can operate at. Um, so to me, it seemed like perhaps if that texture was present on the frame, that that could have been a similar sort of aerodynamic feature. Is that is that even something that uh, would make sense on a frame to add that sort of texture? Um. I guess the the theoret theoretical answer is yes. So what what you can do with uh, with it comes back to Reynolds number I was talking about before, and it's to do with the nature of the boundary layer, which is the flow very close to the surface. And adding texture like that to a body, what it does is uh, it prematurely forces the boundary layer to go from laminate laminar to turbulent. And this can help to keep the flow attached longer. It's why a golf ball has dimples and it's why you see uh, textures on um, pylons and things like that sometimes. So in theory, yes, if you had a tube that was separating early, then by putting texture on it, you could force the flow to remain attached longer and therefore reduce drag. The tricky part, and as you have mentioned from your other sources, is that that phenomenon depends on how big the, the cylinder is. It, it works best with cylinders, so that's why you see it on humans because arms and legs are fairly cylinder-shaped. Um, so it depends on the diameter, it depends on the velocity, and it depends on the amplitude of the roughness that you're using. And if you get any of those wrong, you can increase the drag more than you can decrease it. So in terms of uh, skin suit design, for example, it's very tricky because... The, the speeds that 
humans operate at on a bicycle and the diameter of the arms and legs and things like that are close to these sensitive points in terms of drag. So if you get your point wrong or you're the wrong type of athlete in terms of your speed or your arms are bigger, your suit might make you slower than somebody else wearing the same suit. So it's really sensitive, which makes it incredibly difficult as a design characteristic. So now we know that there are a lot of different things that need to go into an aero bike specifically uh, to balance off the aerodynamics with comfort, stiffness, and all the other ride characteristics that we've come to expect. And I think the important point that Nathan made there was that the reason that's the case is because unlike in other vehicles, the chassis itself is uh, is also the structural element that needs to be aerodynamic on the bicycle, whereas with a car, uh, you can often separate the skeleton from the chassis. It's not so with bicycles. So the primary focus is still on aerodynamics, which means ride quality can suffer a little bit. But here's the thing. Uh, if you look at aero bikes nowadays, uh, and, and really bikes, road bikes in general, you're seeing uh, manufacturers make a big deal about how big of a tire they can fit in their frames. And that's because, you know, obviously the trend has been that uh, tires are getting wider. Uh, but tires and, and wheels actually have probably the most significant impact on how comfortable a ride is. So if you can go wider and you can lower your tire pressure a little bit, you're going to get those comfort benefits no matter what bike type of bike you're riding. So that is actually pretty impactful when you're talking about an aero bike that's you know, historically been dubbed uncomfortable. So without even adding uh, compliance features like the Madone's uh, isospeed decouplers, you can still tailor your aero bike's ride to be a little bit more comfortable, especially as as uh, tires get wider and wider. And that's why you see, well, it's part one of the reasons I should say, that you see a lot of aero bikes uh, coming with disc brakes, uh, which allows for a wider tire, among other benefits. Uh, and it's also uh, one of the reasons that you're you're seeing uh, the experimentation with one by. Uh, that's actually twofold. I mean, yes, one by can also simplify the design elements in that area of the bike, which allows for uh, more clearance for a wider tire. One by also offers some aerodynamic advantages by getting rid of your front derailleur and, and reducing the profile of, uh, of of the chain rings since you only have one instead of two. Uh, of course, there are other problems with one by drivetrains that have sort of kept them from from catching on just yet. Uh, my guess is once we start seeing uh, companies figure out how to make more uh, smooth transitions between uh, cogs. Uh, we're going to see more one-by drivetrains, especially on aero bikes. For the time being, we've seen Specialized uh, go in with the LA, which was initially a one-by bike, and now they've gone back to two-by with that. Same thing happened with the 3T Strata. It, it doesn't seem like the one-by drivetrain is is uh, is there yet. Uh, but my guess is that once we see the one-by drivetrain get a little bit more refined, the, the bikes you're going to see them crop up on before any others is aero bikes. Uh, or TT bikes. Those are the bikes that are going to benefit the most from them. So in in a, a brief recap of what we learned today, uh, the truncated airfoil is sort of the uh, the backbone of the aero bike. And it's it's the ideal shape, not for pure aerodynamics, but because it allows engineers to balance aerodynamics with all the other features we need to pack into a bicycle, which makes the challenge of creating an aerodynamic bicycle pretty unique 
uh, as compared to a car or an airplane. Uh, and that is essentially why <laughs> whenever these bike companies release these aero bikes and everybody's saying it's oh, it's 1% faster, it's half a percent fat, this many grams of drag faster. And we tend to poo-poo that. But if you really think about the design elements that go into this, any sort of gain in this respect is pretty miraculous in a lot of ways, especially if that bike rides smoothly enough that you'd actually consider hopping on it uh, every day. As it is right now, I am currently doing long-term tests of the Trek Madone with the, the new overhauled ISO-speed decoupler. We just got the new Venge in. Uh, I haven't ridden that one yet, but I'm pretty excited to ride it. Uh, our, our tech writer, Leonard Zinn, uh, has spent some time on the System 6, and what we're finding is all these bikes are pretty incredible in their own different ways. So there's nuances between them, but the fact of the matter is we're living in an era where every single gain is hard-fought. Uh, that's why we're not seeing any crazy dramatic design changes within the UCI uh, limits, because we're already at the point where we're getting as aerodynamic as we possibly can without sacrificing things completely like comfort and lateral stiffness. It's a pretty incredible time to be riding a bike, quite frankly. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway from this, this whole uh, discussion is that we really need to question whether most of us need to be riding an aero bike rather than a lightweight aero, uh, all around bike. If you're getting more gains from the aerodynamic shaping of that frame on, on hills up to 6% grade, that's pretty big. Um, that's probably the majority of what most of us are, are riding every day, unless you live somewhere that's very mountainous, in which case you'd probably want that lightweight climber's bike. Um, so why don't we? Well, again, it's subjective. People are looking for different things in their bikes. They want that responsiveness. They want that comfort. Uh, and quite frankly, it, it comes down, as always, to which bike fits you the best. Uh, so I hope that was pretty informative for you. Uh, and you have a little better understanding of what goes into designing an aerodynamic bicycle. And now the, you know, the demystification of what a truncated airfoil is will hopefully help you understand what you're looking at next time you go to buy or consider buying an aerodynamic bike. Uh, if you've got feedback on this episode of the Velo News Tech Podcast or questions, uh, please do tweet at me at Brown Tie Dan, or of course you can tweet at Velo News. And of course, if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to see me cover in the future, I'm also absolutely welcome to hearing those. So please, again, tweet at Brown Tie Dan. Thanks for joining me, and we'll see you next time.